The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24 this morning. We're actually going to be in two different spots, Luke 24 verse 1 and Ephesians 2. So let's start off with this statement. No one enjoys losing, right? Nobody likes to lose. No one sets out and thinks, you know what? I'm going to botch this whole thing, and I'm going to lose. Because all of us have, I'm not competitive at all, but there's enough competitiveness in me that says, I I want to win. I don't like losing. Now, I may not, sometimes it may not be worth the energy to, like, really try to win, but we all want to win, right? Um... Everyone wants to be victorious, and we'll go through great lengths to ensure a victory, right? We want to win really bad. We'll, we'll go through great lengths to ensure a victory. A few years ago, uh, Becca and I took all the students to Mission Arlington, and uh, one day, for no reason at all, Becca and I decided we were going to race to the van. I don't run. Um, that's... I'm, when I was a kid in Little League, I'm going to tell you this is super embarrassing. My nickname on the sports team was Turtle because of how slow I am. And, and so, but in this moment, in front of all those other students, I could not lose. That's not an option. You can't let your wife beat you in a race in front of all these other kids, right? That's, you'll never live that down. As a student pastor, you'll never, lo- you'll never live that down. So we, 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 it was like on your marks get set, go. And I ran as fast as I possibly could. Thank God my legs are like longer than the average human height. And I'm just like just running and stretching out as far as I can. I'm fairly certain today I still have like permanent hip damage from this run. And this is the last time I ran uh, probably three or four years ago. Um, But I won. I was victorious. I will not ever race her again because she'll kill me. But in this one moment... I won, right? I, I, and, and this is a story I'm going to tell my grandchildren one day um, about how I beat their grandmother. But that's what today's all about, right? Today's all about victory. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered death. Do you get the ramifications of that this morning? How big that is. I think because for 2,000 years we've been celebrating that truth that over time people get super like just, just completely numb by that truth. But that is an unbelievable truth. Jesus conquered death. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says this. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not based on what we do, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus defeated death. And that's what this day is all about. Jesus defeated death. He overcame the grave. That's why we do what we do. We gather, we grow, we give, we go all because Jesus was victorious over death. Everything we are hinges on that truth. 
Easter is not about the Easter bunny. Easter is not about the eggs and all the cutesy little presents your kids get on Easter Sunday morning. Easter is about the victory of Jesus. Everything we are hinges on this truth. Without this, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no freedom. We have no future. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And listen to this, and so is your faith. If Jesus didn't raise 2,000 years ago, there's no point for us to be here this morning. If Jesus didn't raise 2,000 years ago from that grave, there's no point in us singing songs. There's no point in us listening to preachers. There's no point in us gathering and living in fellowship. There's no point to any of this if Jesus didn't raise. But here's the truth. He did raise. We believe wholly in the body, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we've dedicated an entire week celebrating Passion Week because the resurrection is a big deal. So let's just start off with that before we go any further. Let's let that sink in. The resurrection is a big deal. I know we've celebrated, many of us, lots of Easter's. I'm seeing some shiny heads. There's a lot of Easter's that people have celebrated in this room, right? A lot of Easter's. And sometimes when we do something repetitive like that, it becomes just another thing. This is not another thing. This is not another thing. This is a huge deal that Jesus rose from the grave. So let's look at the text together. Luke 24, verse 1 says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground and listened to the sentence. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his wounds. Let's focus our hearts and minds on that sentence. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? That one statement has so much meaning to it. That one statement has so much truth to it. It's something that we've been celebrating for 2,000 years and we will continue to celebrate until Jesus comes back. We are celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive. Why look among the dead for someone who is alive? Alive people act alive. That's why Jesus immediately leaves the grave. He wasn't like, you know what? That was some good sleep. I think I'm going to go ahead and get some more sleep and just kind of relax here and hang out in this grave a little bit longer. No, immediately he gets up and he goes out because alive people act alive. But here's where I want us to go this morning, and I kind of alluded to it in the welcome. Because of God's love, Jesus' victory is our victory. Because of God's love, Jesus' victory is our victory. I shared this passage of scripture at the night of worship, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. It says, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility. Let that sink in. How amazing is that? When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus shares his victory with us. Jesus shares his victory with us. If that doesn't get you excited this morning, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Y'all standing. Jesus' victory is your victory. That's something to celebrate this morning. That's something to get excited about. Amen. He conquered death so that we can be alive with him. So this morning, I want us to spend our time together focused on that truth, that thought. What are the ramifications of this? If Christ conquered death so that we can be made alive with him, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? So let's look together at Ephesians 2, verse 1. This is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously, previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you were saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do, not from works so that no one can boast. All right, so if you're a type A or you're taking notes, three points this morning. Bad news, good news, life-changing news. That's what we're going to be talking about. So let's start off with the bad news. Nobody likes bad news, right? Nobody, nobody wants to hear the bad news. Some people want to cut this part out because they don't like talking about it. Some people want to take the scripture and like rip the pages out that have all the bad stuff in it. Like we, don't want to, we don't want to talk about that. In fact, there are actual Bibles that you can buy that have no bad news in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some people want to cut it out because they don't like to talk about it, but the good news doesn't make sense without the bad news. This gospel doesn't make sense if there's no bad news to start with. If there's no bad news, there's no need for crucifixion or resurrection. So what does Paul say here? What's the bad news? First of all, he says, your sin brings death. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Julian did a phenomenal job Friday unpacking this idea that God hates sin. If you missed that, you missed a great, awesome sermon, uh, challenging, convicting. It was great. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The result of sin is death. All sin. All sin brings death. Why is sin so bad? Why is sin so bad? Julian pointed out that God cursed the entire world over just disobedience. It wasn't the big bad sins that we like to list, like murder and rape and all those things. It was, it was just disobedience. They ate a piece of fruit that they were told not to eat. 
and God cursed all living things because of it. Why is sin such a big deal? Because it's rooted, all of it, every bit of it. The little lie to murder, all of it, is rooted in rebellion against God's created order. It's the created telling the creator, my way is better. That's why sin is so bad. Let me paint to you a picture of why this is so just horrible to God. Our youngest, we have four kids. Our youngest is five. God bless him. He is entering the stage. And one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat it out of him, I think. But he's entering the stage where he likes to tell me that I'm going the wrong way. Dad, this is not the right way to get to church. You're going the wrong way. You need to go this way. He's five. I've been driving four times longer than he's been alive. Right? Why is that so irritating? Maybe you have kids that do the same thing, like to tell you how to do things, how to, how to live your life, and you're like just infinitely more mature and wiser than they are, right? It's so irritating. I'm like, you're five years old. Just keep your mouth shut back there. You're in the far back because that's where you're supposed to be. Just be quiet and don't talk and ride. That's your job in the car. Not to give me advice on driving. Your job is to be quiet and ride. It's so irritating because it's so illogical, right? What goes on in that dude's little head to think that he, a five-year-old with no driving experience, knows better than me? Thank you for letting me share this with you. I do feel better. Thank you. (laughs) Why is this so irritating? Because it's insulting, right? It's ridiculous. But here's the thing. As ridiculous as it is, I've gone the wrong way before. I have got it wrong before. I'm not infallible. One time when Becca and I were early, early on in our marriage, we went to Universal Studios in Florida, and I'm ashamed to admit that I drove like three hours south after when we were trying to head home. We started seeing signs from Miami, and I was like, I think we went the wrong way. Man, I could have used Davis at that point. I've got it wrong before. God has never gotten it wrong. He's infallible. And yet, we think that our way is better. That's why this is so detestable God. That's why this is so irritating because it's us, the creation, looking to the creator and saying, my way is better, my wisdom is better, my understanding is, is better, and how ridiculous is that? This is how it all started in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 4. No, you will not certainly die. This is the snake talking to Eve. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and ate it. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they wanted to be like God. They thought that their way was better. How insulting to an infallible God And how ridiculous is that? At its root, all sin is rebellion 
against God. All sin is my way is better than yours, God. All of it. The little stuff that we want to categorize as little and the big stuff that we want to categorize as big. That's why all of it brings death. Which leads us to the next point that he makes in the bad news is that you're not neutral. He says, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. There's a spiritual battle raging all around us. And there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You're not Sweden in this. There is no middle ground. We're all on one side or the other. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus there is talking specifically about money, but it applies to all things. You can't serve two masters. Choosing indifference is choosing a side. Nominal Christianity is choosing the opposite side of Christianity. Do you get that? Pursuing your own fleshly desires and your own logic is choosing the other side. Paul is saying that this type of thinking is following Satan. You get that? That's the, he says it in little pretty words like following the prince of the air. But ultimately what he's saying is that this type of thinking is following Satan. And when you first read that, you're like, well, hold on. I'm not a Satan worship. That's crazy. What's Paul saying? Satan worship is more complicated than candles and pentagrams. Satan is more alluring than that. He's more charming than that. Paul is saying that indulging in our fleshly desires and living according to our own wisdom is satanic. It's walking according to the ruler of the power of the air. Why? Because that's exactly what Satan did. He looked at God and said, I know better than you, and then he was banished from heaven. So when we do the same thing, when we sin, we're doing the exact same thing thing is Satan. We're following after his lead. A spirit of rebellion towards God is satanic. If you're not surrendered to Jesus, you're on the other side. There is no middle ground. And the last bit of bad news that he gives us is because of all that, because you're dead to your sin, because you're on the other side, you're destined for wrath. Look what it says. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. People don't like to talk about the wrath of God. You don't typically walk into someone's house and find that cross-stitched on a beautiful pillow. Or you know those like fancy little signs that people put in their, in their house now? It's like, a, it's like a wooden frame and like white and then like cursive font. It's like, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? Stuff like that. You don't typically read about the wrath of God on those signs. <laughs> These verses don't typically make the cut for the cutesy stuff like that. But here's the deal. Love and wrath go hand in hand. Love and wrath go hand in hand. You can't have love without wrath. Let me kind of paint a picture for you. The more you love someone, the more wrath you have when someone hurts the person you love. Right? For instance, if you come into my house and try to hurt my kids or my wife, at this point in my sanctification, it's likely that when the cops arrived, you will be found dead in your trespasses and sins. <laughs> I just swear I'm at. 
right or wrong, that's just, that's just my heart right now. And I'm praying God to change my heart daily, but that's just, that's just where I'm at right now. Because as much as I fiercely love my children and my wife, I will fiercely defend them. I will bite your ankles off. Why? Because I love my family and will protect them at all costs. Listen to this. God doesn't just love. It's just not an action that he performs. God is love. He is love. And as much as he is the source of love, he's infinite in his love. He's also infinite in his wrath. And our rebellion against God places us in the direct path of that wrath. But... Now we get to talk about the good news. This is the part you've all been waiting for. We get to talk about the good news. First part of good news, God loves you. Look what it says. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you catch the transition there? Two little words, so much meaning, but God in the Greek, theos, it is huge Those two words have so much power and so much meaning in them. You were dead in your rebellion against God. You were in the direct path of God's wrath, but God. But God. God loves you. John 3, 16, we all know it. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God loved you. He made a way for you to be made alive with Christ, even though you were dead in your trespasses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says this, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam or in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead. His victory is your victory this morning. We too can be made alive. Not only that, but it also says, seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? God changes our status from living under the wrath of God to children of God. You go from being living under the wrath of God to God saying, that's my child. 1 John 3.1, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are. This is, this is what Easter is all about. This is what we're celebrating today. The fact that God comes in and offers you a way to reconciliation, but not just so that he can give you a new life, but so that he can say, that is my son, that is my daughter. This is huge. You ever watch those game shows? And they'd be like, they'd be talking about the prizes, they list off these things, and they're like, but wait, there's more. You ever seen that? That's what this text is, right? 
God only gives us life, but he also adopts us as sons and daughters, changing our identity completely. He changes your identity completely. You're no longer bound to sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. God changes you and makes you an heir of his and gives you the power of his spirit so that you can overcome sin in your life. Look at Titus 3, verse 3. It says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. You are an heir of the Father, just as Christ is an heir of the Father. God declared that we are heirs with the hope of eternal life. This is what Easter is all about. The next part of good news is this. He offers you a free gift. For you were saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So how do we receive this good news? How do we get it? You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't steal it. It's God's gift. It's a product of his grace. How do you receive this gift? Paul says it's through faith. It's through faith. You just have to believe. But you have to believe with more than your mind. You have to believe with your heart. James 2.19 says you believe that God is one. Good. Basically says good for you. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Faith is more than intellectual understanding. Faith is more than just deciding in your mind, yeah, this is, this is true, I believe this, that's cool. Faith has to make its way to your heart because faith is surrender. I have a friend who went skydiving, which, how does that make any sense? Right, if you've been skydiving, there's something wrong with you. You... <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. That's a perfectly good plane. You just jump out of it for no good reason. Just because you, you, you need some thrills or something? I mean, that's totally a first world problem. You don't find anybody like in the slums of Africa being like, let's jump out of a plane. No, they have enough of that. They, don't, they have enough excitement in their life. But I was very inquisitive about his experience, so I asked him a ton of questions. I asked him how hard it was to really jump out of a plane. Like, what, what gets you to that point where you're like, I'm ready, I'm going to do it, I'm going to jump. Like, how do you get to that point? He said that they had spent a couple hours in training beforehand. They would, like, learn all the lingo, learn all the, like, the positions and stuff that they're supposed to do, learn how to check everything, make sure everything's buckled up. They, they spent a lot of time, like, training and preparing. And then these people, they showed him all the stuff to do in case of an emergency. Like, if this parachute doesn't pull or whatever, then you, this one, and... If your person like passes out, here's what you do. I mean, it's just like all these like things. Like if all this bad stuff happens, here's what you do. And then they talked to him about the tandem jumper that he was with. He got to meet him. He got to learn about all of his experience and all the stuff that he had done beforehand to prepare for this moment. This dude had jumped like thousands of times. So he's very qualified to be the tandem jumper. They talked about how they care for the parachutes and keep them well-maintained. Well they talked about all the stuff that goes into making sure that everything's 
good. They check the little brackets and all that stuff to make sure that it doesn't break off. During the lesson time, my friend said that he was all in. He was like, man, that's good. I love you. You check that three times? That's great. I love that. That's good news. I'm glad that you do that. And he trusted his tandem jumper when he's hearing about his experience and he's meeting this nice guy. He's got a lot of charisma. And he's like, this, this dude's got to figure it out. He's done this a bunch. I, I totally trust this dude. He trusted the parachute. He's like, this thing looks like it's in pretty good shape. It doesn't look tattered or torn. The backpack looks like brand new. We're good. So he gets in the plane. They go up thousands of feet in the air. And then he's looking over all these like empty fields. And looking back down to the earth, jumping took a whole nother level of faith. It's one thing to be on the ground and be like, I totally believe all this stuff's good. I totally believe that you know what you're doing. I totally believe that that backpack with that parachute is going to save me. But it's a whole nother thing when you're thousands of feet in the air and you're looking back on the earth, on the earth and it's, if you, this doesn't work out, this, this is it. This is how I go. It takes a leap of faith to make that jump. Right? That's the difference. That's the difference between intellectual belief and faith. A lot of people are all about Jesus when it's convenient, when it's easy. But when things get difficult, they walk away. That's not faith. That's not faith. That's intellectual assent. There's a big difference. There's a big difference between believing in your head that Jesus is real and surrendering your life to him and faith. Faith is complete abandonment. It's trusting enough to jump, which leads us to our last point this morning, life-changing news. Look what the text says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. When we surrender in faith, to Jesus, his spirit comes and makes us into something completely new. Second Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Are you following along with this this morning? All this good news, God makes us alive with Christ. He adopts us into his family, making us heirs of eternal life. Then he gives us a purpose. He redeems us. This is unbelievable. God has a plan for you. He wants to use you for his purpose. He doesn't just save you. He gives you a new direction in life. He gives you something to aim yourself towards. Have you looked at the world we live in? Nobody has this. Everybody has all the stuff, and every day they're just like, I just need more, I need more so that I can be fulfilled, and it never fulfills them. What fulfills you is living the life that Christ has for you, living out this purpose that he has given you. God wants to make you Fishers of men, what's, what's this purpose? To seek and save the lost. When Carter was seven, he put his faith and trust in Christ. And man, we were excited. We baptized him. It was an awesome thing. And immediately, he got this. He goes to school. I think he's in like first grade. And he's like telling these kids at school, listen, you are a sinner. And if you do not repent of your sin and surrender your life to Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. You know, like parents calling, like, what is your kid talking about? But he got it. He's seven years old and he got it. This, this, this new life that Jesus gives us leads us towards something, not just to live the life like the rest of the world. That's what most Christians are doing today. They're nominal. They're, they, don't, they don't 
put their faith and hope in Christ. They just go out and live like the rest of the world. They have no, there's nothing that the gospel has done in their life to change them. That's not faith. That's not the gospel. The gospel changes you. It makes you into a new creation. If it hasn't made you into a new creation, then you have not surrendered to it. You haven't. The gospel is powerful. Jesus' death and his resurrection was powerful. It's victorious and it changes lives. It gives us a new purpose. This is what the Christian life is all about. This is the product of our faith. This is what it looks like to be spiritually alive. Paul says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is why God saves you so that he can redeem you and use you to build his kingdom. 2,000 years ago when Jesus wasn't in that grave, the angels asked, why are you looking for the living among the dead? It's illogical to go to a graveyard looking for a living person. Jesus was alive. And it wasn't logical for him to be in the grave any longer. And this morning, the truth that I want us to really get is that his victory is your victory. His victory is your victory. If you've surrendered in faith, and he has made you alive again, it doesn't make any sense for you to engage in the sin that brought you death to begin with. It doesn't make any sense for people who proclaim that God has come in and made them alive again to go back into the old stuff that brought death in the first place. That's totally illogical. As illogical as it is for people to go look for someone who's alive in a graveyard, it is illogical for us to be proclaiming that Jesus made us alive again every Easter Sunday, and yet our lives look like the rest of the dead world around us. It's illogical. It makes no sense. Because the gospel is powerful. Because Jesus' victory is your victory. Not victory over the circumstances in life. Victory over your sin. That's what the gospel is about. The question to ask this morning is this. Has this good news changed your life? Has this good news changed your life? Is your faith evidenced by your good works? If the answer to that question is no, then this morning I think it would be important for you to honestly evaluate if you've ever truly surrendered your life to Jesus. Have you ever truly surrendered in faith? Because this is way bigger than intellectual assent. This is way bigger than just head knowledge. We live in the Bible Belt. Everybody you talk to says they're a Christian. But what the Bible teaches is that if you really are a Christian, then your life looks different than the rest of the world. 
That's what the Bible teaches. Anybody else that tells you anything else is a liar. The Bible teaches that the gospel changes your life. It changes everything. And the truth is this morning, if it has not changed your life, if you look exactly the same today as you did the day before you professed Jesus, then you haven't truly surrendered in faith. You may have intellectual knowledge, but you haven't truly surrendered yourself to it. It's so important that we understand this. Because Jesus says that there's going to be people on that last day that come to him and they're going to say, and we, we did all this stuff, we did all this ministry stuff, we prophesied in your name, we healed people, we did all this crazy stuff. And he's going to look at them and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I never knew you. Why? Because those people had intellectual assent. They never truly surrendered their life and faith. And so this morning, if that is you, don't let another day go by without surrendering yourself to Christ. Not just because it's a get-out-of-hell-free card, but because he gives you victory. He gives you life. He gives you purpose. That's what today is all about. Not about a fuzzy rabbit. Not about eggs. Not about all the stupid stuff that we do on this day. But because Jesus, when they went and looked in that grave, was not there. And those angels said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Our lives should be exactly like that. Not a bunch of people walking around like they're dead, but a bunch of people walking around made alive together with Christ. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? This morning, if you are coming to the conclusion that you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ in faith, Maybe you've made an intellectual decision. Maybe you walked down an aisle when you were a kid and prayed a prayer, but in your heart of hearts, you know that you never truly surrendered your life to Christ because there's no fruit. There's no evidence of it. If that's you this morning, my prayer, my hope for you is that in this moment, you will choose Christ. You will choose to surrender your life to this truth that we've been talking about, this good news, this gospel. And if that's you and you want to talk to someone about it, we would love an opportunity to talk to you about that decision. We would love an opportunity to walk through Scripture and show you what it means, what it truly means to surrender your life to Jesus. Here in a moment, the the band's going to sing. They're going to sing, and and there's going to be an opportunity for you to walk down. There's going to be a couple of people standing here who would love to have that conversation with you. I get that it is terrifying to walk down front here. I get it. I do it every week. I get that it's scary to walk down front here, but listen, when we truly surrender, there's no obstacle that will keep us from making this decision. My prayer and my hope this morning is if you don't truly know Jesus, that you will surrender to him today and allow us to have that conversation with you. Maybe this morning, you've put your faith in Jesus and it changed your life. It changed your desires. It changed who you are. But for whatever reason, you've drifted back to the sin that brought death. My challenge to you this morning is repent. Ask God to change your heart and start choosing faith over your own logic 
and desire. It makes no sense for us to pursue our own desires and our own logic. We are flawed. We are the kind of people that will drive two hours towards Miami because we don't, we're flawed. We don't know everything. But Jesus does. He's infallible. He's the only one, the only being worthy of our complete adoration, our complete service, our complete worship. He's the only one worthy of our complete obedience because he knows more than we do. So my prayer, my hope is that this morning, however God is leading you, however God is speaking to your heart, however he is challenging you, if he's convicting your heart this morning, that you won't respond with rebellion, that you won't respond this morning with a sense of, man, I don't like it when preachers get up there and they start poking and prodding into my stuff. That's not me talking. Everything that we've said this morning is found in this book. So you have a choice. Do you surrender to it or do you not? My prayer is that your heart is soft and it's not calloused. Your heart is not having a spirit of rebellion this morning, but you're willing and ready to surrender to Jesus. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the victory that you have given us, the victory that you won for us. We could not win this victory. We couldn't do anything about our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, we're so thankful that you made a way. You made a way that your great love and your great mercy and your grace made a way for us to breathe new life experience the fulfillment that only you can give and only a life truly surrendered to you can receive so God this morning I pray that our response to that truth that response to that gospel would be surrender that we stop trying to live life in our own logic in our own strength but that we would recognize that there is no life apart from you and that in this moment this morning we would surrender to you in faith so much for listening and we always welcome you to join us at fellowship church in Nederland, texas where we gather grow give 